Are you willing to examine the traditions and doctrines that you trust in for your eternal salvation? Welcome to the Great Deception Podcast. I am Don Britton and I will be your host. I will be comparing the modern traditions and doctrines of American Christianity with what the scriptures actually say. You may be shocked to find out that much of what is commonly believed in American Christianity today is nothing more than myths handed down to us by men. So please join me now with an open mind. Hello, I'm Don Britton and welcome to another Great Deception Podcast. Today I'm going to talk with you about the king principle and how it works with most pastors and preachers today. When I say king principle, I'm talking about how pastors, prophets, evangelists, and Bible teachers set themselves up above the rest of the people and lord their position over the people as though they were something special or better or more important than the rest of us. 1 Corinthians 12 verses 12 through 25 reads like this, For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greek, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body, and if the ear says, because I'm not an ear, not an eye, I'm not part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body, just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or the hand to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body, which seem to be weaker, are necessary. And those members of the body, which deem less honorable, on those we bestow more abundant honor, and less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. The same care for one another. So here it is clear that Paul is describing the relationship of each member to the other. Some members may stand out as more presentable than others, like the ones with a speaking gift, like a teacher or pastor or prophet, while other members may not be so presentable and only operate in the gifts of things like helps or administrations or giving or other things like that are not so much in the front and are not so visible. The speaking gifts are more noticeable than the gifts of helps, for an example. But the one who has a speaking gift as a pastor or prophet or evangelist or Bible teacher, he is no more important than the one who just helps in any way he can. And since the pastor, the prophet, or the teacher is more noticeable than the one in the background helping or administrating and so forth, the pastor, the prophet, or the teacher doesn't need to be recognized as much as the member who just helps or administrates. That way, there's no division in the body of Christ causing some members to be exalted above others. All members are equal in the eyes of Jesus and should be treated as such. 
But is it really that way in most churches or ministries today? Matthew 23, 1. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. In other words, they put themselves in the place of authority. Therefore, all they tell you, do and observe. That is, as long as they're telling you the word of God, of course. He says, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. In other words, they... <laughs> Preachers and pastors talk about doing the right thing, living for God and so forth, but do they really always do it? Well, I've got some statistics on that. You can listen to the previous podcast. I'm not going to go into that right this minute. Matthew 23, verse 4. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with even so much as a finger. Well, one of the heavy burdens is the tithe they teach, the law of the tithe, which is not even for the church. And that can go into more th things about that. If you listen to the last podcast, I covered the myth of the tithe, so I'm not going to do that again today. Verse 5, but they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and they lengthen the tassels of their garments. In other words, they brag about their education, what they know, what they've learned, where they've been, what they've done. They also love, verse 6, they love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. Jesus said, but do not be called rabbi. Or you could, he could say, do not be called pastor or do not be called reverend or do not be called doctor. You know, in other words, take away the title. But he says, do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher and you're all brothers. In other words, you're all brothers, you're all equal, you're all the same in my eyes. In verse 9, do not call anyone on the earth your father, like the Catholics do. Father this, father that, you know. For one is your father, Jesus said, he who is in heaven, he's your father. In verse 10, he says, do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. You know, a man can be a leader but it's not to be titled as a leader. See what he's saying? He's not saying there's no leaders. He's just saying, don't take the title. For one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. He shall be your servant, not your king, not your leader. See, I'm talking about the king principle today. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Now I want to say this. These hirelings, that is these paid preachers, these paid pastors, these paid ministry uh, operators, they love being called things like pastor or doctor so-and-so or reverend so-and-so or uh, maybe like being called the apostle or, you know, they like those, those titles in front of their names. They like it just like the Pharisees love to be called rabbi. They love the respectful greetings wherever they go. They want to be honored. If these men didn't want to be honored this way, they would not let people use special titles in place of their name or give them special honor. Paul was an apostle, but his name was Paul, not Apostle Paul. A man can be a leader, but his name is not Leader Bill. A man can be a pastor, but his name is not Pastor Smith. Nor should his name be preceded by a pastor when somebody speaks of him or to him. God hates these labels that separate and elevate some men above others. And I'll tell you something, it approaches blasphemy for anyone to call a man father. You know, in the Catholic church, they do this all the time. These young guys, they come out of these schools and you know, they're 24 years old and they're, and, and some 50 year old guy calls them father. It's ridiculous. And it's, and it's blasphemous 
because our father is God. He's not a father. He's not their father. God is our father. It also approaches blasphemy for anyone to call a man reverend. Since only God is our spiritual father and only God is to be revered. For your information, the word reverend comes from the word revere, which means to be worshipped, revered, and feared. It also indicates that one is to be honored, adored, and highly respected as being most holy. Does that sound like something a man should be given? Does that sound right to you? To call a man reverend? This practice of being titled and honored by men tells us that they really are not of God when they allow and expect this to be done for them. According to Jesus, we are all brothers. There's no big I's and little U's here. We're all brothers. There is no man that should be specially treated or elevated above other people in the body of Christ. Only Jesus is Lord. Only Jesus is special and worthy of this kind of honor. And he even said the greatest man you will ever find is the humble man who is your servant. We're all called to be servant. Nobody is, is supposed to be put above another. Yes, I realize there's order in the body of Christ and I realize there's places of authority and leadership, but it's as a servant, as a help, not as a, as a dictator, not as someone who's to be treated special. It's just a particular gifting. It's a particular job. And I'll tell you something else. There is no such thing as the clergy. This is another title of elevation developed by men to lord it over the rest of the flock that they have now labeled as the laity. In other words, there's the clergy, they say, and the laity. There's the big eyes and the little U's. Neither the word clergy nor laity are found in the Bible, nor are the applications of their meanings used anywhere. The so-called clergy, they're the ones who get to park in the special places at the building. And there's a sign placed there for them that says clergy park here and so forth. They love the best seats in the meeting halls. They love the respectful greetings wherever they go. They sometimes even wear special robes or unique clothing or they have special collars on so that you, you will know that so that they can get the attention and the respect they desire because they want to be recognized as some kind of a spiritual leader. They love the honor of men. And they love the unjust gain they receive from the members who work hard for a living. They are acting more like kings and princes than they are like humble servants of God. And, the, and they, certainly, they certainly want the people to bow down to them in a, in a sense, you know, in that, in that kind of a sense. Now, in 1 Samuel 8 through 11, we have the king principle laid out by the prophet Samuel. And it goes true to, it rings true to this very day. All the other worldly nations had them a king, but Israel didn't have a king. God was their king. They had messengers and prophets, of course, and they had priests, but they didn't have a king at that time. And they were wanting a king, and Samuel warned them about this. So here's what he said. 1 Samuel 8, 11 through 17, he said, This will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots. That's like his programs and his and his ministry, and, uh, and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. That is, he, in other words, he's going to use them in whatever he's going to do. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties. In other words, he's going to set up his own uh, leadership under him. He's going to have his own uh, uh, elders and his own deacons, and they're going to do whatever he wants them to do. So he's going to appoint for himself commanders of thousands and fifties, and some will do his plowing, and some will reap his harvest, 
and also to make the weapons of war and equipments for his chariots. See, that's all typology of something that we could look at today. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers, and he will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves, and he will give them to his servants. He will take a tenth, a tithe of your seed and of your vineyards and give it to his officers, that is his staff, those who work for him in his office, in the church building, in his ministry. He's going to take your money, he's going to take your valuables, he's going to take your produce, and he's going to give it to his people. He will also take your male servants and your female servants, and, and he'll take the best young men and your donkeys, and he'll use them for his work. In other words, every minister's got his own programs. He's got his own staff. He's got his own policies. He's trying to put together whatever works for him to build his kingdom. And so he will also, Samuel goes on to say, he will also take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his servants in other words, you're going to be volunteering for his ministry. You're going to be serving the church. You're going to be serving the ministry. You'll be working and giving them money. You'll be there spending your time. You'll be working in the programs. You'll be volunteering for whatever they want. And that's called the work of God. It's false, but that's what they call it. They call it the work of God. So here, the pastor, quote, prophet, quote, king of today, it's like a king. He's like a king. He will reign over you as your special leader. And, the, and he will be called the clergy, or he'll be called the reverend, or he'll be called the doctor of theology, or the pastor, or father, or maybe priest. He'll be called by a title that you will have to honor. He'll take your sons and your daughters and your wives, and he'll use them in his programs in the church or in the ministry. And, and in most cases, they won't, he won't pay you. He'll just have you to volunteer your family to do all these things he wants done. He will appoint his own elders and his own deacons over the members to do his will. He will use his use your sons and your daughters for his own personal benefit. And he will take the best of your time and the best of your energy and the best of your money for the church programs and different ministries. And he will, he will extra, extract from you a tenth of your income and he'll call it the tithe. And he will pay himself and pay his staff and build his buildings and build his ministry with your money. And rather than him being your servant, as God said, bringing the word of God to you at no cost and turning you from your sins to save your soul, you will end up being his servant, giving him your time, your energy, and your money. He will keep you too busy doing things for the church for you to focus on your own family or your own personal relationship with the Lord. He will praise you before others and call you a faithful Christian because you serve him so well and you pay all of your tithes. You see, this pastor slash king will focus on numbers, dollars, and programs, and he will keep you too busy serving him for you to have, a, have time to seek God, for you to have time to teach your own family, or even to know God or the truth, or to even recognize the false doctrines that he is teaching. Before my wife and I left the false religious system, we were too busy with church stuff, to seek God or to work through our own marriage issues, which we had at the time, much less ha have time to teach our children the ways of God. Here's, here's, here's how it was for us. And, and, and maybe we were excessive, but we wanted to please God. We wanted to serve God and we did what we thought was serving God. So here's what we did. We went to church on Sunday morning and we went to church on Sunday night. We went to church on Wednesday night. 
On Thursday evening, we, or I mean, I'm sorry, on Tuesday evening, we had visitation. On Saturday, we went to a state prison to do prison ministry. And then on Thursday night, we had, uh, we worked at the halfway house that's associated with the prison ministry to try to help those guys who are transitioning from prison back into society. And then on Friday night, we had home fellowship meetings. They were called cell groups meeting in our own house. So you can see that we were busy basically every day and every night except on Monday. And <laughs> we were wore out. And I was running a business and I was working a lot of hours at my shop. I was being, I was an auto mechanic building transmissions in those days. And, and I worked hard and I, and I had five kids and I had a wife and I had a house that had to have some work done on it. I had a yard that needed to be mowed. I didn't have time for God. I didn't have time to work on anything that really mattered because I was being churched to death. We were literally being churched to death and we were receiving absolutely no spiritual benefit whatsoever from all this religion we were in. So I woke up one day and in 1983, after being a Christian for only three years at that time, I took my wife and my kids home and I began to study the word of God for myself and to teach my family at home the things I was learning. I soon discovered that I had been taught false doctrines concerning salvation, concerning how grace works, concerning paying tithes, concerning pastors being paid, concerning the rapture teachings that I had been under, and many other things. I studied all the time. I studied like I studied like a whole day per week. I took my whole Sundays and spent six to eight hours per week studying the scriptures for, from that point on for years. And I discovered so many things that I'd been taught incorrectly. And I also discovered who God was. I discovered what his will was. And as a result of this, of leaving the church world, I now had time for my wife and my kids. I now had time to know God for myself. And from that point, my life was, tra was transformed. My wife and I were transformed in our marriage. Our kids and I began to have a close relationship and began to love my kids and teach my kids and concern myself with what was going on in their life. But the most important thing of all was I now had time to seek God and to know the Lord and his will for myself and for my family. And this is critical. Most people that, that go to church, they, their whole religious life, their whole spiritual life centers around church attendance. And beyond that, they don't, don't usually do much else. They don't usually seek God. According to the statistics that Barna and other groups have done, they find out that people, for the most part, don't even, don't study. They don't really have time to pray or take time to pray. They don't seek God and they just attend church and accept that. So listen to what Paul the Apostle had to say. Paul, Paul had this to say. I want you to pay attention to this scripture. Uh, this is in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 10. Paul said, Or do you not know that the, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate. Now I want to hang on to that word effeminate. Hold on to that. The word effeminate nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. But I want to focus on the word effeminate. I want you to notice that the word effeminate 
is not the same word as homosexual. If you look it up in the Greek, it's a different word. So let me define that word for you because it's a very unusual word and it's only used four times in the whole New Testament, in the whole Bible, actually. So the word effeminate in the Greek is the Greek word malakos, M-A-L-A-K-O-S, malakos. Here's what it means. It means a soft man, a man with soft hands, a man with feminine characteristics, a man who is unacquainted with manly work. This is not the same word used for homosexual here, even though some homosexuals are effeminate. So the Greek word malekos only appears four times in the Bible, like I said, and is translated one time into English as the word effeminate and translated three other times as the word soft in the New American Standard Bible, which is the one I primarily use. So let us look at the other three times this word is, was used from the mouth of Jesus. Now stay with me here. I have not changed subjects. I want you to hear what Jesus said, and I want you to follow this. Now Jesus said in Matthew 11, verses 7 through 10, this is where the word effeminate, malakos, comes up two times in these, in these three verses. Here's what Jesus said. As these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. That's talking about John the Baptist. He said, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by a wind. In other words, did you see a man who was wishy-washy? No, sir. But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? That's the word effeminate. Did you go out to see an effeminate? No, you didn't go to see an effeminate. John the Baptist was no effeminate. Those who wear soft clothing, there's the, again, those who wear effeminate clothing, those who are like effeminates, Jesus says, are in king's palaces, king's palaces. See, Jesus is talking in a parable here, but what is he talking about? But he goes on to say, but what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. In other words, when you went out to see John the Baptist, you didn't see some, some mealy mouth pastor guy who doesn't do any work, any manly work. You didn't see some, some Pharisee out there you saw a man of God. You saw a strong man of God, not a soft man, not an effeminate man, not a man who lives in a king's palace. What is a king's palace? It's a place where kings live. In other words, you didn't see a king. You didn't see a religious king. You saw a servant. You saw John the Baptist. He was my servant. He was more than just a prophet. This is the one Jesus said about whom it was written, behold, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the, your, your way before you? He says, this man was not an effeminate. So, notice that the one dressed in soft clothing, he lives the soft, easy lifestyle of a king. And kings live in king's palaces, which is, in modern terms, it's the finest office in the church building. It's the, it's the big ministry headquarters. It's the guy who has the big jet to fly around in. It's the guy who has, there's one, one of our so-called prophets of God. He's, he's worth about $780 million. He has, I think, three private jets. He has his own runways on the property he has down in Texas. Now, he's definitely living like a king. There's a lot of them living like a king. Even on a small scale, a lot of local pastors are living like kings. They're living a nice, easy, soft lifestyle. They're soft men. They're not doing any work at all. They're just sitting around the office making phone calls, having uh, meetings with their staff, 
planning programs, staying nice and comfortable, working in air condition and all wearing nice clothes every day, having everything easy, taking the money from the people, living the life of a king. The next place where we find the last place where we find the word malekos, effeminate, in the scriptures is in Luke 7 verses 24 through 27. Listen to this. When the messengers of John had left, he, that's Jesus, began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out there to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? There's your word soft again. Malakos, effeminate. Did you go out to see an effeminate? Did you go out to see a king? Did you go out to see somebody who thinks highly of himself? Those who are splendidly splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces, Jesus says. Royal palaces, that's where kings live. But what did you go out to see, Jesus said? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet, this one here is not like the effeminates. He's not like the Pharisees who go around wearing nice clothes, who do no work at all, who pray the long prayers, who speak the words they call of God, the ones who are the lovers of money, the ones who don't work but use the people, the ones who lord it over the people. This is not who John the Baptist was. So what did you go out to see? Yes, a prophet. I'm telling you, he was one who's more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. So again, Jesus is saying the same thing he said before in Matthew. He's contrasting the difference between John the Baptist, a true messenger of God, and the false preacher who lives like a king. You see here that Jesus is talking about the difference between a true messenger of God, like John the Baptist, like Elijah, like Moses, like Samuel, like Jeremiah, like Ezekiel, and so many others like that, versus a soft man who lives in king's palaces, quote-unquote king's palaces, who is the effeminate. There's nothing soft about John the Baptist. He strongly preached repentance from sin and sternly warned everyone to bear the fruit of repentance or be cut down. He said the axe is already laid at the root of the tree and every tree that does not bear fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Those are the kinds of words that John the Baptist spoke. The soft king of the present time does not preach like John the Baptist did, but he delivers a much softer message. This king, the clergy, talks about the graces of God and the love of God all the time. Doesn't give the warnings of God. This king, this clergyman of our times, he lives in the biggest, most comfortable office at the church building or at the ministry headquarters. He lives in the king's palace and he's not doing any manly work of any kind to earn a living. And I know manly work's not just carrying bricks or building, you know, houses or whatever, but it's doing anything productive with your body or your mind to make money, to earn your own money. He's not doing that. But he is, he lives in the most comfortable place at the church building and he's doing nothing at all. He's typically a soft man since he doesn't do anything physically or mentally to produce a godly income for himself and his family. He is following the procedure of the king that Samuel the prophet spoke of explaining how 
that he was going to take the money, the 10% from the people, and he was going to run his business with it. The effeminate preaches and collects the tithe. He does so so he can live the soft, easy lifestyle. He also uses the members to run his programs for the church, which makes him look good. He loves sordid gain. That is, he loves, he loves the money that others are working for. The money others are out here sweating, so to speak, to earn a living for, he loves taking part of it, 10% of it, so that he can live easy. He is the hireling that Jesus talked about in John chapter 10, who is not the shepherd of God. He is the one who came to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus wasn't talking about Satan coming to kill, steal, and destroy in John 10. He was talking about the hireling, the paid preacher, the effeminate, the one who lives a soft, easy lifestyle, the one who takes the money from the people to live on. This is the one who Jesus was talking about that came to steal, kill, and destroy. Yet he, the effeminate, he is very popular with the people. But remember this, the effeminate will not inherit the kingdom of God. So now I want to be fair, so I must include what I'm saying here about the paid pastor. I must include a few other remarks. I have no doubt that there are a few, a few, and there are very few, good and decent godly men serving as a pastor somewhere in a few places who are presently being paid for that service. These pastors are few and far between, the one I just described. I'm sure that these men want to have, they do want to have the best interest of the people at heart, and they want to please God. But they do struggle with being totally straightforward with their members, like John the Baptist was, since after all, they're being supported by the same members that they're required to be honest with. That's tough. I mean, on one hand, the money they're living on comes from the people that they're speaking to, so they don't, you know, it's, it's kind of hard not to tell them straightforward, look, if you don't turn away from your sins, you're not going to enter the kingdom and maybe lose that member and maybe lose that support. So this is the dilemma that they're in. And since they're really not greedy men, they often do receive less than they would in a secular job. And therefore they are in those cases making a personal sacrifice and they're doing so for the sake of the souls of the men they're, they're teaching and serving as best they know how. But here's what I want you to understand. They did not learn this practice. That is the practice of being paid as a pastor. They didn't learn it from the Bible and they didn't learn it from God, but they did learn it from a broken church system that has handed down traditions from men that are not from God to them. If they went to Bible school or seminary anywhere, they were programmed to become a paid pastor, expecting to be taken care of by the people and to be set above the people as the clergy mentality, these good men just didn't know any better than to do as they've been taught. Then they struggle with it. I've talked to some that really felt bad about it, didn't know what else to do. Any paid pastor who has the right heart will hear this message and will quickly reevaluate his life and the method he's used of, be of being paid for preaching. He will look for other men in his own church who are, who are qualified elders and teachers and for them to share this responsibility of discipling members with him. He will get a job and, and he will move away from having to have an expensive building and, and these big budgets and he will simplify the work of the church down to just discipling people and saving souls rather than constructing buildings and running programs to keep people happy. 
In fact, he will move much more towards telling church members that they have no hope unless they repent of their sin and become overcomers, bearing fruit and enduring to the end with Jesus. As he does this, he won't need a large building any longer because there's only going to be a few who are really willing to be saved and who are really willing to deal with their sin, who are really willing to receive correction. There's only going to be a few left over. It's always a few. Narrow is the way and small is the gate and few there be that find life. He won't have to worry about being popular anymore and he will recognize that being paid only makes it much harder to tell the people what they really need to hear. This good pastor will hear the voice of Jesus and follow after him and run to the truth when he hears it. That is, when he hears that it's supposed to be a lot simpler than what it's been. And he will be glad to give up his kingship. Jesus said in Luke 16, verses 13 through 15, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now the Pharisees... See, there's those effeminates again. There's those paid preachers. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And I've had a lot of preachers scoff at me when I bring this message up. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The very idea that pastors, prophets, evangelists, missionaries, Bible teachers, or ministry leaders, the very idea that they expect to be paid for their service to God while the other members serve them voluntarily in their ministry or the church only shows that they have exalted themselves above the rest of us, above the rest of the members of the body of Christ. Not to even mention again all the other ways that I've already explained that they've exalted themselves. It's just another way they set themselves above the rest of us. I mean, they get paid, we don't. We give them our money, we work, they don't. It's, it's, it's all out of balance. It's wrong. Another thing I want to bring up. Have you ever noticed the trend for pastors to make their own son the replacement pastor when they either retire or they slow down or the church gets bigger? They always appoint their own son. Whether he's qualified or not, whether he has a heart for God or not, it doesn't really matter because they just want to keep it in the family. Or their son takes over the ministry, the big ministry, when the father retires or slows down. In fact, I could name many big ministries right now you're very familiar with that the son now is, has taken it over. The son now is the leader of that ministry. The son now is participating in that ministry and he's going to have full charge of it when the father passes on or the father completely retires. So here's what it's like. It's like inheriting a financial estate or a business from your father. Well, I guess it is a business, right? Is the church or the ministry some kind of dynasty where the son inherits the kingship? Isn't, isn't this like a dictator of a third world country? Isn't, isn't, isn't this like it is in the third world countries where the kings make their sons the princes and the son as a prince then becomes the heir of the kingdom, of his kingdom? Is it God's kingdom or is, is it God's church or is it God's ministry or does it belong to the man? I mean, come on, think about this. It, it doesn't even matter if the son is qualified or called of God. It doesn't even matter if he's called of God. It only matters to the pastor or the ministry owner that he can keep the good financial thing he has going on, keep it in the family. You've heard the old saying, let's keep it in the family. 
Let's keep the money in the family. So this is the nature of kings, not disciples of Christ, not servants of God. But did Jesus set up kings in the church or did he call humble servants? Men of flesh, they love power and money. And this is just nothing but pure corruption. I want you to notice what Jesus said in Matthew 23, 11. He said, but the greatest among you shall be your servant. And Jesus also said in Luke 22, verses 24 through 27, he said, notice this, what happened among the disciples. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded as the greatest. You can just see this. This is so immature of them. But Jesus sets them straight. He said to them, the kings of the Gentiles, in other words, the kings of those that don't know me, the kings of the religious system, the kings that act like the effeminates, they lord it over them. And those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest, in other words, humble yourself, and the leader like the servant. And Jesus said, for who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? He's the greater one, right? But Jesus said, but I am among you as the one who serves. So here's what Jesus is doing. He is reversing what is normally accepted. The greater is not the greatest. Isn't that interesting? The greater is not the greatest, but it's the one who serves. The one who serves the greater is the greatest. <laughs> he said that even though the greater is the one who reclines at the table, that the greatest in the kingdom of God is the one who serves at the table. This is not what is practiced today in modern American church or ministry anymore. Jesus does not crown kings into the ministry, but he only calls humble servants who serve voluntarily and who are motivated by their love of God and their love of the people. So, the greatest among you is not the one that you call reverend, or you call pastor, or you call doctor, or you call prophet, or you call apostle. You know, by name. In other words, you have named them. They are titled by that. They, they are the ones who request to be called that. You know, they hand you the business card. It says doctor so-and-so, apostle so-and-so, pastor so-and-so. They've got plaques. They've got tags on their car that identify them by these titles. They're not the greatest among you. You want to know who the greatest among you? It's the humblest man who serves you. The Lord's servant here is like unto, the word servant means like one who waits a table. When it says the greatest among you is a servant, the word means like someone who waits a table. It's the one you can depend on or call on anytime for help. A true shepherd, which is a true pastor, is the one who meets with you the one who guides you in the right way. He's the one who would teach you, instruct you in right living. He will correct you when you're in error and he will rebuke you when you sin. This true servant of God is a watchman who watches over the souls of the ones God has placed in his life. He's not tied up in church business, running all the programs, working on the, the building funds and all the different worldly religious meetings he has to go to he's serving the people and this servant of god he never never exalts himself over the people he serves he never takes anything from the people he's serving and he does not expect any honor or special treatment from anyone 
He is not a king. He doesn't act like a king or think like a king, but he hates the ways of the kings and he will even expose those kings that he sees out there and warns the people about them. He serves because he loves God. He serves because he loves the people. He serves because he is so grateful that God saved him and that he wants to give back to God. By, by giving back to the people of God and serving them, this is how he gives back to God. And he's glad to do it. And he's glad to do it voluntarily. And he would never take money or gifts from the people he has served, that he is serving because he knows that would be totally against the will of God and it would also go against his own pure conscience. This pastor doesn't care about what others think of him, but he only cares about what God thinks of him. Therefore, he is not a man pleaser and he does not tickle ears, but he speaks only what God says concerning sin and righteousness. He is very straightforward and he has no fear of man and only fears God. So I want to ask you this. Have your eyes been open today at all? Do you see any kings around you? Do you see any kings that are living in kings or royal palaces? Do you see any dynasties where the sons are inheriting the business from their father? It's their estate, you know. It's their estate. They're, they're, they're inheriting the estate of their father. It's the big business. It's the money machine. Well, if you open your eyes, they're everywhere. Shouldn't be hard to find any. Next week, I hope you listen to another Great Deception podcast as I expose what is wrong with American Christianity today. And I also will be glad to always explain what God really wants from his people. Hope you listen next week. Thank you for listening to the Great Deception podcast. You may visit my website at www.christianmyths.org for more information, for my blog and for my email address. You can also get my book, The Great Deception of American Christianity Without Christ, on Amazon or on my website. Also on my website, you may download two free chapters of my book. I hope you join me next week as we continue to examine The Great Deception.